When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the season finale edition of the Dunked On Basketball podcast. This is episode number four. I'm joined by Danny LaRue. How are you doing, Danny? Doing well. It was a pretty crazy day of action. Yeah, you excited for this playoff field? Uh, at least for the West. The Eastern Conference first round will be a little bit rough, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. All right, so where do you want to begin with tonight? There was obviously a lot of games that had playoff implications and, of course, draft implications as well. Where are you going to start? I think, the for me, let's start with the a little bit with the East and what the surprising circumstance that happened. So everybody expected the Raptors to beat the Hornets. They actually trailed at moments in that game, but they pulled away. And then your Chicago Bulls needed a win then from the Hawks to get the three seed. Did you get a chance to catch much of that game? Yeah, I caught bits and pieces, and... Really, the Hawks, when they played their starters, were waxing the Bulls. Yep. Derrick Rose had a pretty weak game, four turnovers, pretty low usage rate. He's had a very high usage rate this year when he's actually been in in his limited minutes. So I thought something might be up when I saw the box score at halftime. And sure enough, he didn't come out for the second half. Fortunately, he, at least according to him, is okay. He just felt a little bit of soreness in his left knee which is the ACL knee. I'm not sure which knee is considered the good knee and which knee is considered the bad knee for him at this point, but that's the ACL knee, not the one that he just recently had surgically repaired. Uh, He said if it were a playoff game, he could have continued to play and that he expects to be ready for the next game. Yeah, and so they ended up pulling it out, 
and that meant that they got the three seeds. So at that time in the day, we actually had the first two playoff matchups set because it was going to be Raptors against Wizards, and then you're going to have Bulls against Bucks. So that's fun because those teams are geographically close. At the same time, you were seeing what was going on in the West and the first dynamic. Well, let's 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 finish up with with the East first, if you don't mind, because sure, th- there were definitely some really interesting dynamics here before the game. I was really when the Hawks. It was pretty clear that the Raptors were going to win, as everyone would have expected them to over the Hornets, who have basically given up on the year at home. So that meant that the Bulls had to win to maintain the three seed. Atlanta, I would have thought, would have wanted to be extremely complicit in that because then, at least for my analysis, and I would presume theirs, they would view the Bulls as a greater threat in round two than either the Raptors or Wizards. Agreed. And so they would want to put the Bulls in the other bracket. The Bulls might even upset Cleveland, potentially. Uh, probably not, but maybe. They, they definitely have the best chance of doing that of any of those teams. So I was very surprised to see the Hawks run out their starters. Paul Millsap did play uh, after missing time with the shoulder strain, so that was good to see. And they really took it to the Bulls, who were just throwing the ball over the gym, turning it over in the first half. Then the Hawks got up to, I think it was a 16-point lead right after halftime mm-hmm. with their starters, and then right after that they packed it in, and it was, I think their lineup for most of the rest of the game was Shelvin Mack, John Jenkins, Austin Day, Elton Brand and Mike Muscala and the Bulls heroically managed to defeat that intrepid group by six points, ninety one eighty five. Yeah, so so then they they got that in there and yeah, so that so that facilitated it. Do you want to go through then what happened in the eight? Do you want to go there next and finish off the East? Yeah, we can. Although of course that ended up affecting the West as well. But Brooklyn was down for a lot of the the game to Orlando. I didn't get a chance to see that one that much, but uh, it looked like Brooklyn made their run in the uh, middle part of the fourth quarter in a lineup with Brooke Lopez on the bench. And he's been great for them, but you know sometimes there's a, a better matchup when they can spread the floor and run pick and rolls around uh, Mason Plumley. And one of the big beneficiaries of that was a boy in Bogdanovich. 12 of 17 from the field, 4 of 8 on threes. He was plus 19, dropped 28 points, and he was really the, the reason that they were kept in it in the first half and then were able to pull away. He had what you would probably consider a career game. No one else on the Nets really did a ton offensively aside from him. Yeah, I watched a little bit of the second and third quarters in that, and what Bogdanovich did, what you brought up, is that's important, is that he kept them in the game, because Orlando was really outplaying them in the stretches that I saw, but Bogdanovich was getting open looks, and he was making them, and so that kept it close enough so that when they went on their run, they were still in it, and they were still fighting, and obviously they had plenty to play for. So that enabled them to put the pressure on the Indiana Pacers later on in the night. So for Orlando, keep in mind that this was not exactly a heroic victory for the Nets. <laughs> uh, no no uh, Evan Fournier, no Channing Frye, no Tobias Harris, no Luke Ridenauer for the Magic. So, uh, But the Nets did manage to pull it out. They, you could say, backed into the playoffs uh, with what happened with uh, Indiana and Memphis. But 
why don't we move on now to the West, just some, some of the uh, the chalk games, uh, the, the Houston Jazz game. Uh, Houston predictably blew out the Jazz. No Gordon Hayward for the Jazz in, in that game. I think, you know, last game of the season on the road, don't have much to play for. Uh, kind of a predictable result yep. for a Jazz team that battled quite admirably the second half of the year. They nuts to be ashamed of. The one thing that was amusing probably that came out of that game was a tweet from Trevor Booker as uh, taunting Ennis Cantor about how the Thunder didn't make the playoffs uh, by saying that uh, at least the Jazz didn't lose to a non-playoff team, which the Thunder ended up being. And he was referring back to the game where the Jazz beat the Thunder in Utah after Ennis Cantor made some inflammatory comments about the Jazz organization prior to the game. Yeah, there's definitely some bad blood there, and in Oklahoma City, going on to that game, they had to beat the Timberwolves, not surprisingly considering the Timberwolves had to lose to maintain their status as the sole holder of the worst record in the league. The Thunder won that game going away, Russell Westbrook scored 37, and they dominated the whole way. I watched little bits and pieces, because there were little stretches where uh, Andrew Wiggins guarded Russell Westbrook, which was a little bit exciting, and... But it was it was one of those games. One team really wanted to win and was way better and actually played all their or played all their healthy players. The other team did not, and that that happens sometimes in the last game of the year. Yeah, as we say goodbye to Russ, uh, a, a fitting end for him. He dropped thirty four points in the first half, yep. thirty seven overall for the game, uh, and he did that on it looks like uh, twenty eight shooting possessions. So very efficient. Dean Winters also uh, made a nice push for. His potential contract extension with 33 points on 26 shooting possessions. So, uh, and Ennis Cantor, same thing for him, 25 points on 18 shooting possessions. Uh, great efficiency for the Thunder against uh, really an all-time bad defense for the Timberwolves with the guys that are playing. Uh, we talked a lot, we talked last night about uh, how bad their lineup was with most of their guys out of the game. Although they did at least play Kevin Martin in this game. Um, so. Yeah, the, the Thunder, uh, it, we'll have to say goodbye to them, and it'll be a really interesting offseason for them, which we will, of course, get into in future episodes. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to note that if Dion Waiters gets a contract extension with the Thunder, I might go a little bit crazy. I, I, I'm, a, I'm lower on him than most people, but it just doesn't seem like the right time for that. But as you said, they have a huge decision to make with Ennis Cantor because they have to make a decision on him. It's not a situation where they can push that can down the road. And... They made the decision to acquire him, presumably with an eye towards retaining him, but where his price point is could have a effect on whether they really want to go through with that. Yeah, and of course that could have uh, big luxury tax implications. Again, yes. a topic for later. Absolutely. Um, so does that take us to uh, the marquee game, Spurs Bells? Yes, it does. All right. Uh, so did, did you watch that game pretty closely? I, that was... Uh, my, my main game that, that I watched throughout. Um, I gave the Pelicans a, a much better chance in this game going in. I think a lot of people were saying that, you know, they really wouldn't have much of a shot. I mean, it, the, the some of the numbers that were being bandied about on Twitter were, you know, the Pels really only had a 40% chance of making the playoffs, which I, I thought was definitely way too low. I thought they had at least a coin flip shot, a shot of winning that game. So, uh, it, it turned out that they did. They're a real tough team at home, and at least for one night, they had a, were a very actualized team with all of their guys healthy for really one of the few times in these last two years. 
Yeah, and they got some quality performances from all over the court and some of those guys. And you could tell at stretches, they dom- they dominated in the first half. There, at one point, I remember I was on my way back, actually, from the Sports Innovation Conference at Stanford, saw that New Orleans was up 20 and went a little bit crazy. And then the Spurs, not surprisingly, went on their run, but they could never make it all the way back. And then the Pelicans made a nice little closing effort, culminating in a very nice block by Anthony Davis on Boris Diaw when he was driving to what would have made it a single possession game. So the uh, a couple of things popped out at me from this, and, and I can't remember the last time Greg Popovich got criticized for anything that he did as far as game management, but I, I think I'm going to have to in this game. Danny Green only played 18 minutes, and – the Spurs were right there until he got into foul trouble and they took Tim Duncan out for his normal rest uh, about midway through the first quarter. And that's when the Pels won on their big run. They were up by 20, really, by the midpoint of the second quarter when Green was out. But we still saw Manu Ginobili. He played 20 minutes. That's, that's about normal for him. But he was really bad, especially in that run. He was getting lit up by Eric Gordon on pin downs and dribble handoffs and pick and rolls. And that was opening things up for the bigs. And and then later he had a couple real bad possessions where he was guarding Norris Cole and uh, just let him get out in, in transition. So really bad game for Mono. He was also only 1-7, 1-5 of on threes, most of which were open. He just couldn't hit them. And he was uh, he was minus 5, not that bad for the game, but uh, still could have played a lot better. Um, and then Marco Bellinelli played 15 minutes. He had only two points. And he also got lit up pretty badly by Eric Gordon on defense at times. So I don't understand why Bellinelli especially was playing over Danny Green, especially because the problem for the Spurs was they couldn't stop anybody. Green, clearly the best defender out of that Trioka, and yet he couldn't get on the court uh, really in the second half. He only played eight minutes in the second half, uh, and I just didn't understand it. Yeah, that's definitely a mystery, especially considering we've been talking about the importance of games. The Spurs had an absolutely massive swing with this game because they knew with the Rockets, well, they knew ahead of time that if they won the game, they were definitely going to be the two seed, which is great because that means you get home court against everybody but the Warriors. And if they lost, they had a reasonable expectation that they were going to fall and fall pretty far. And so it was one of those things where you, you don't have the, the benefit of saying, oh, you know, we'll do what we're going to do. I mean, I hope that there's nothing great or wrong with Danny Green. I don't, I don't think so. From what I saw, it didn't seem like it. But it was a strange decision considering they had so much to play for. Yeah, and even at the end, they, Patty Mills had, had some success in the second half, and he had a nice game with 15 points on eight shooting possessions. and But then they were running – Mills and Tony Parker out there together towards the end uh, rather than Green, and and that led to some rough matchups with the three bigger guards that the Pelicans deployed. The Pelicans ended up closing this game with what many would have thought would be their best lineup at the start of the year. They had a front court of Davis and Ryan Anderson, and then they actually had Tyreek Evans, Eric Gordon, and Drew Holiday, who played in in crunch time, uh, really for the first time since returning from his injury, all playing together. And that looked like a pretty darn unstoppable group towards the end until they sort of went into clock milk mode in the last five minutes or so. But even when they were running the clock down and getting ISOs, the 
the Spurs had a lot of trouble stopping them. Uh, and Anthony Davis was wonderful, 31 points. He had uh, three blocks, two steals, 13 boards, and uh, managed to get up 26 shots, uh, hitting, hitting 12 of them, and also did well at the free throw line. Only blemish for him was six turnovers, which is remarkable because I noted a couple weeks ago he had the lowest turnover rate of any player with a usage percentage of 27 or higher. Uh, so six turnovers for him is a massive departure from his norm. Did you have the feeling it was late in the game? I think there was about a, a, a minute or so left, and the I think Spurs were down five or so, and the Pelicans turned it over, and the Spurs got a, got a shot. I just had this moment. I think it was even less than that. It might have even been like 20 seconds. And I was like, if any team was going to do this ridiculousness right now, it would be the Spurs to just rip their hearts out. But fortunately for the Pelicans, it didn't happen. But I had that fleeting second of, oh, God, it could happen in reverse. Yeah, there, there were a few Monty moments, or, or you know, whether whether it's him or the players. I mean, they had one instance where rather than call timeout and advance the ball when they were uh, up by six with the ball about 30 seconds left, they inbounded the ball and then called timeout. As a result of that, they're inbounding in the backcourt. They had a turnover. The Spurs hit a three, and they were within three with 10 seconds left, but then the Pelicans were able to hit their free throws and – and put it away. One thing that Monty does deserve credit for here, though, is he really extended his stars, including Anthony Davis, who, who played 43 minutes, only got about a minute and a half rest in the second half, and those the bench unit was definitely getting hurt, and so he brought him back to stanch the bleeding, and it worked just enough for them to pull it out. Yeah, and you noticed when when it happened that the Spurs were starting to go on a run, and then Anthony Davis came in. And you're like, okay, this is he's going to be in the rest of the way, and he seemed ready for it. It didn't. He didn't look gassed at the end of the game, and they knew. You could tell after the game how how much the playoff appearance, even if it leads to a relatively quick exit, how much it meant to those players. And we've seen in the past that getting playoff experience can be a benefit moving forward, regardless of the outcome. So another thing that popped out me. Here, I guess there are two. One is the Spurs shot 57% in this game, which you'd think it's pretty tough to lose a game when you shoot 57%. But they're only 3 of 10 from 3. Uh, the Pelicans did a great job of shutting down the three-point line. And then they only shot 13 free throws as well. So it shows you how important those easy points from threes and free throws are because even though they shot 57%, uh, they still really didn't score it much above an average rate, they had 103 points, and and throughout most of the game, at least, you know, they're pretty much around a point per possession. They probably got above there with uh, Mills heroics in the fourth quarter. So that was one thing that popped out. Another was that the Spurs didn't have Tiago Splitter in this game. They started Aaron Baines, uh, played him 25 minutes. He was definitely overmatched, trying to guard Anthony Davis. The Spurs don't like to put. Tim Duncan on opposing power forwards with range. They like to have him protect the basket. And so Baines uh, was a little overmatched. Boris Diaw played 34 minutes, had a, a great game with 20 points, but he wasn't able to stop Davis either. And it was a little disconcerting that Davis was really able to blow by him. Uh, Boris has looked notably slower this year, and the Spurs are really going to need him in the playoffs to be able to defend. And, you know, now that the Spurs are going to be going up against the Clippers, they need Tiago Splitter to guard Blake Griffin. Tiago did a great job on Dirk Nowitzki and a great job on LaMarcus Aldridge last year. So if they don't have him, 
Uh, they might be in a little trouble against the Clippers. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But uh, Splitter uh, is definitely a key part for the Spurs, and they're going to need him defensively. They are. And one other thing that I wanted to note, I blanked on it, but you, you kind of brought something up, is that the Spurs shot 57% and lost. And one of the things that I noticed was the turnover margin is that they were they get, turned it over 15 times. And then I looked and... New Orleans turned over nine times, but six of those turnovers were Anthony Davis, which meant that their perimeter players, quote-unquote, only turned it over three times, which is pretty remarkable, both in any game, but particularly against the Spurs in that situation. Yeah, also, we should note that Tyreek Evans had a nice game, 34 minutes, 19 points. He's being guarded by Kawhi most of the game, and he deserves a lot of credit for what he was able to do against a guy who's been shutting just about everyone down, uh, for the Spurs. Absolutely, and th- that set the table for a pretty suspenseful final game that mattered in the season, and so the the structure that was in place is that the Pacers had a win-in-their-in situation because Brooklyn won, and the Grizzlies had knew that if they won, they got the five seed to face Portland. You and I talked about this yesterday, and if they lost, they had the six in facing the Clippers, so they had a, both teams had a lot to play for. It had stretches that were a little bit closer, but the Grizzlies pulled it out behind a monster game by Marcus Yeah, Gasol was unbelievable. He had that ankle injury. You saw him live on, on Monday. You say he was looking okay. Uh, well, I guess he's healthy, at least uh, as of today, because he had just a fantastic game, 33 points, 13 rebounds, five on the offensive glass, two steals, only one turnover. And he, he did all that on 23 shooting possessions. So that's a lot more efficient than he usually is. He, he only shoots 49% from the field normally. Uh, and he doesn't get to the foul line that much either. And he doesn't get on the glass that much either. So he really was outstanding offensively, carried the Memphis Grizzlies, and also uh, was a stalwart on defense when the Pacers just could not score to save their lives. Yeah, and something that I noticed we talked about after the Indiana OKC barn burner about how Roy Hibbert was more assertive and aggressive against Enos Cantor, he had seven points and four shot attempts in this game, and that shows the difference between Marcus Gasol and Enos Cantor defensively. He wasn't getting the ball, he wasn't getting those looks, and when you when a guy has almost as many turnovers as he has shots and he's a starter and you need that offense from him in a must-win game, that tells you something about, I would say, about both guys. Yeah, it does. So that unfortunately left the Pacers out. Frankly, I would have rather seen them than the Nets. I thought they actually could have given the Hawks a, a reasonable series uh, with their defense, and, and that also would have been kind of interesting since it was the inverse of the 1-8 series last year. And looking at the the Pacers' shot chart in this game, they just couldn't get anything going at the rim. They only got 24 shots at the rim, hit 12 of them, and uh, you can see the effect of Gasol there. And then, you know, they had to take 20 shots uh, from mid-range outside the lane. That's not ideal either. And they didn't shoot their threes well. So with all that, I mean, I, the biggest thing that struck me for the Pacers is both of their front court players, Hibbert and West, have player options for next year. Uh, whether they take them will be an interesting exercise. But I think the Pacers need to think about trying to evolve a little bit so they can get some more spacing offensively. I think with that front court of Hibbert and West, you're really limiting the amount of 
efficient, easy points that you can get. Neither of those guys is really going to hit the offensive glass that hard. Neither of them is really going to bull inside for post-ups to get fouled. Neither of them shoots threes, and neither of them gets out in transition either. And so when you've got those two guys and they're not spacing the floor, it really makes it tough on the other three guys. So whether it's playing small a little more, which Vogel really hates doing, whether it's getting another guy who can shoot threes, uh, who can rotate in as a third big, I think that's something that the Pacers, really that's kind of the low-hanging fruit for them to improve their offense because their defense, I think, when they're healthy, uh, can be near a top-of-the-league unit. Uh, the only problem is if you lose Roy Hibbert, then you lose a lot of what makes your defense great. So maybe uh, finding someone to supplement West uh, would be the way to go for the Pacers to improve the most in this offseason. Yeah, and they're going to have a lottery pick because they didn't make the playoffs, and that's fortunate. There, it, But it might make more sense to get a player if they can find one who's a stretch four or who's already established. This draft may have a couple potential guys. I was thinking about how in, how weird it would be if they had Frank Kaminsky because there are some other uh, Kaminsky-Hibbert front court would just be strange. But they will have the ability to make that improvement either way. I think there are other things that would be better if they could get some more reliable offense from the perimeter, though I think Solomon Hill had a better year than I, I expected, to be honest, and CJ had had some moments as well. But they're going to have the opportunity to improve, and I sincerely hope that they do because I think that the East is better for having a good Pacers team. One other small note, Paul George kind of came up lame at one point and was rather dramatically carried off the court. As it turned out, it was just a uh, a left calf strain, which is the opposite leg of the one that he broke. So I don't, I don't think anything major there. I mean, it may put a little bit of a dent in his off-season work, which would be a shame, but you know that kind of freaked people out. And, and if you watched the game and you didn't see what happened, uh, so you know he, he, nothing major uh, as far as we know with Paul George. Yeah, and it was one of those where there was a little bit of a Twitter freakout, and that happens, but when a guy gets carried off, I understand that a little bit, but fortunately, it looks like it was relatively minor. So now we've got, uh, so that win for the Grizzlies puts them in the five seed, and frankly, a little bit of a disaster for the Spurs having to go on the road to play the Clippers, uh, probably the third best team in the conference in round one. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you have that, and there it's going to be tough because they're we don't know what's happening with Splitter. I think it would have been a major benefit for them if they could have avoided facing somebody real tough in the first round, because then that would have given them the time to get everything right. But that also means that we get a marquee series starting on the weekend. Yeah, that's going to be good, and it was really interesting to see sort of how everyone would be rooting and uh, the Warriors were probably rooting for the Spurs at first because they were hoping that the Spurs would be the two seed and be in the opposite bracket. And then they could face the Thunder who are probably a much easier matchup than the Pelicans are at this stage. Then when the Spurs lost, you're suddenly rooting really hard as a Warriors fan for Memphis, hoping they get the five seed, because otherwise you get the Spurs as the five seed, they probably beat Portland, and then you got to play the Spurs in the second round, and then likely 
the Clippers or someone who beat the Clippers in the conference finals, it worked out perfectly for the Warriors because the Spurs are now going to have to play the Clippers. They very likely, well, I shouldn't say very likely, they very possibly could lose that series. Or And now they're only going to have to face one of the Spurs or Clippers. I don't think Memphis really worries the Warriors all that much. And I think you have to put them as massive favorites now to get to the conference finals. So it couldn't have worked out better for them. Yeah, I was thinking about it during it. You and I had conversations about what teams you would want on the other side of the bracket, who had the best chance. And I think that if, considering injuries and everything else, if the Warriors were to choose the three teams on the other side, two of those three teams they got, which is they got Portland and they got the eight seed, which in this case was New Orleans. Yeah, Memphis is a good team, but they're not at the caliber of the Spurs and the Clippers. So, I mean, they got about as good as you could reasonably expect, and there were moments even as late as tonight where that appeared definitely to not be happening. And so the Warriors should be very pleased with that. And I think at the same time, the Hawks should be pleased with them, with theirs too, because while Toronto and Washington have had their real strong moments this year, I feel that they have a much lower chance of beating the Hawks in a, in a theoretical second round. And the Hawks got the benefit of a, I would say, much softer first-round opponent. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. So really, the, the number one seeds both benefited immensely by tonight's events. So no last day of the season discussion would be remotely complete without discussing the tanktastic aspects of the last day of the season, and because we had so many protected picks involved this year, uh, and a, a lot of teams jockeying for position in the lottery, uh, there's some interesting aspects to that as well, starting with that, what could have been an epic Miami-Philly game, uh, which we had talked about last night, where uh, Philly has Miami's top 10 protected pick, and Miami was sitting in the number 10 spot. Yeah, so so you're sitting there, and as it looked like Brooklyn was imploding against the Magic, you were sitting there going, oh, wow, what's really going to happen here? And then a little bit of the air got let out of the balloon when Brooklyn got that win, and also for those of us who cared about who got the eighth seed, it was that. But it ended up being that, while it is not definite until the lottery happens, Miami will retain their pick. Yeah, it's, it's, looking, it's looking like it, and... It... I think it's you know less than like a two percent chance. I have to look it up. So the only way they're going to lose their pick now is if one of the teams, eleven through fourteen, jumps into the top three, and Miami also does not. And I think the chances of that are like two percent or under or something, three percent, pretty minuscule at this point. Yeah, and and then the other drama that was happening at the same time we were talking about Philly and Philly getting the pick is that the Knicks had moments where they were close to the Pistons, and if the Knicks had won again, then they would have gone from having the first pick by themselves to having a tie for the first, having the second pick by themselves to a tie for second. But they ended up losing the game and maintaining the second most ping pong balls. And I guess actually just looking up, looking up now, I understated a little bit the chances that Miami might lose their pick. It's 9.1%. They have an 87% chance of being in the 10th spot about a 9.1% chance of being in the bottom, and then 4% chance of jumping into the top three. 1.1 at 1, 1.3 at 2, and 1.6 at 3, so that adds up to a full 4%. Okay, so what are the chances they lose their pick then? It's 9.1%. 
All right. I, as you are the uh, scenario spreadsheet master, I will trust you on that one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and why don't we run down the seating real quick for the draft order, and, and we can talk about any games that might have impacted that today. Uh, Minnesota lost. They maintained the number one seed. Uh, New York, uh, the number two seed. Philly lost. They are the number three seed. They had incentive to lose there as well in case uh, the Knicks won. Uh, the Lakers didn't have anything to play for. Neither them or Sacramento could have affected uh, their position by winning or losing. So the Lakers are four. Sacramento is six. Same thing with the Magic at, at number five. They couldn't have changed things at all either. And same thing with Denver. Um, and uh, also uh, same thing with Detroit and Charlotte. So the, those teams uh, couldn't have changed anything. And then you got into Miami, which we already talked about. Yeah, and then and then there there's the tie for 11th and 12th with Indiana and Utah. That'll be a coin flip, which is also fun because both of those teams, I think, at full strength, could be pretty talented next year. So they're adding a, a quality player. The only thing that I'll note is there was an outside outside chance if New York had somehow won that game that Denver could have tied Detroit, but that that was really really unlikely, and they would have known ahead of time because the Warriors game is actually concluding right now, so they would have known. A long time before. All right. Well, there's your draft order. Uh, hopefully, we, we can return to uh, this. Sorry, lot of teams uh, who didn't make the playoffs. Uh, you know, in a couple months when we start talking draft. Um, but now, you know, it's time to, to look ahead to the playoffs. And uh, anything else we got to talk about from today? No, I, I think we hit all of it. I, I we'll talk more about the playoffs. But for me, the what I've been really trying to wrap my brain around is that we're going to get. Clippers Spurs starting Sunday. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking a lot more about that on tomorrow's show. Uh, until then, I'm Nate Duncan, joined by Danny LaRue. This has been the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know-how. One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better.